Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be with you this morning. Uh, it's, it's been kind of a crazy, busy weekend, uh, but lots of good stuff going on. Yesterday at, uh, at the Norton campus, by the way, I'm Jonathan. <laughs> I'm one of the pastors on staff at the Norton campus. Um, but uh, yesterday morning we had, uh, we hosted uh, Rahab Ministries, who uh, works with um, girls who have been uh, trafficked and uh, just an incredible ministry, and they had their essentials training yesterday, so we were able to host that, had over 100 people there uh, just learning more about that ministry and what's going on. We were here last night. Uh, my wife was able to join us, and, and it was really cool because we were talking afterwards that she said, uh, no, but I don't think most of you have met her, so she kind of came in, you know, unknown, but... Um, she said, from the parking team to the, the greeters, the, the uh, first impressions and, and just sitting down and everybody, she said, it was just so friendly. And so uh, I just really appreciate that. And uh, she, she just felt so welcomed and loved. And, and I've appreciated that as well as I've been here over the last few weeks that um, you guys haven't treated me as like the, the weird uncle. Um, but uh, you've embraced me as part of the family and so I just really appreciate that. I love love being here and I love what I get to share with you today as we wrap up the series Good Goals Bad Gods. We've been looking at looking at some of the goals we make especially this time of year <clears throat> when we're starting fresh. But as Pastor Greg pointed out last week, most of these new goals that we made at the beginning of January, we've, we've either broken or we've forgotten. And uh, I know for me, uh, this past fall, I kind of got out of the routine of, of working out and getting exercise. So I thought, after Christmas, after New Year's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back into it. And so that first week in January, I, I got up early, I drove to the, to the Y, and um, drove around the parking lot, couldn't find a place to park. Finally found a place, but it was so far away and such a far walk that I ended up going to the hardware store. So that's how my year began. Uh, since then, it's, it's gotten better. I'm, I'm going more consistently. And in fact, this past Wednesday when we had so much snow, I had my pick of the machines. It was, it was great. But... Um, We've been talking about how goals are good things. Goals give us something to work toward. They keep us motivated. They keep us challenged. They keep us moving towards something meaningful. And over the last few weeks, we've talked about financial goals and, and relational goals and, and health goals, all good goals. I mean, because rarely are our goals bad for us because no one says, I want to binge more Netflix in 2019. No one says, I want to spend more money on worthless things. No one says, I, I want to eat more donuts in 2019. Well, there might be a few of us. But no one typically makes it their goal to start a bad habit. However, goals can become unhealthy and, and deadly to us when we begin to make the object of our goal our God. So again and again in the Old Testament, the first section of the Bible, the people are warned, don't worship idols, don't worship other gods. In fact, the very first of the Ten Commandments God gives his people says, you shall, not, you shall have no other gods before me. 
And we read that and it's like, well, that seems pretty simple. I mean, I don't have a shrine in my house to other gods. I'm not talking to other gods. There's not that going on. But it's, it's not a problem like that. It's, a, it's really, it's, it's a heart problem. You see, when good things become ultimate things, our good goals become bad gods. When good things become ultimate, I must have this. This is my greatest desire. I'm centering my life in this. Good goals become bad gods. You see, we all worship something. If, it, if it's not the living Lord God, then it's something or someone else, often ourselves. And when my identity, who I am, becomes dependent on what I do or what I'm pursuing, I create this inferior God in my life. But often this kind of God doesn't replace God completely or, or totally However, it does distract me from knowing and loving God exclusively. The fact is, it becomes very easy to develop this God and philosophy to life. Where I try to give God time and try to give him attention, but, but he's in competition with all my other passions. And so, and so we have God and sports, or, or God and money, or God and relationships, or God and health and food, but God and education, God and me. And like I've said, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. They're good things that only become bad when they start to compete with God and consume my life. You see, God doesn't want to be number one on this extensive list of all the things we do. No, God wants to be at the center of it all. Our hearts were made to be satisfied by God and God alone. Jesus speaks to this very clearly when he says in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he gives this very practical example. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and fill in the blank. It doesn't work. And so this morning, as we wrap up this series, I want to talk about one last good goal that, that can become a bad God. It's a goal that centers on, on just trying to be a good person, trying to be a moral person. It centers on my morality and, and all the religious things that I do that, that I tend to think make me such a great and good person. Because you see, often people make good goals like, I want to read my Bible more. I'm, I'm going to pray. I'm going to get up early and pray each morning. I'm, I'm going to make sure I get to church more often this year. I'm, I'm going to memorize a verse, uh, a verse a week. They're all great goals. When someone says, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to read through the Bible this year, my first response is not, oh, I, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> no. I'm going to encourage the daylights out of them. That's, that's a great goal. So how do these good goals, these great goals then become something that can actually begin to hinder my faith and my growth? How do these things become bad gods? Well, I grew up in, I grew up in church and from, a, from the nursery on up. And as I look back on it, <clears throat> we do some really weird things. <laughs> 
I was thinking about this. When I, when I was just a little kid, I think it was preschool, we had this Wednesday night program called Whirly Birds for Jesus. Anybody familiar with Whirly Birds? There's been a, there's been a few hands I've seen. But we had this program called Whirly Birds for Jesus, and we had little red beanies that we wore that had propellers on the top. And you could earn badges for like little trinkets, and we would get together with our little red beanies with our propellers, and as little kids, we'd gather around and we'd sing the Whirly Birds song, the Whirly Birds for Jesus, we live for him each day, we fly our helicopters and we serve him all day long. And we, it was great, we loved it as little kids. You can imagine all these cute little kids running around with red beanies with propellers. But you could earn badges and little trinkets by how many verses you memorize or by you know, good attendance or uh, you know, doing kind things for one another. You'd get these little plastic things and mom would sew them on. And so here I am as this little kid wearing this red beanie with a propeller with all of these different trinkets hanging from it. If you can imagine, it's, it's weird. So anyhow, <laughs> we had this big contest. And it's like, okay, whoever gets the most points during this specific amount of time. And she pulled out this little plastic Bible. This little plastic Bible that if you, if you looked up, looked through it in the light, the whole New Testament was written on the inside. Of course, it was too small to read it, but it was, it was there. But as a little kid, I'm like, this is awesome. I gotta have that little plastic Bible that I look through and I see the whole New Testament. I've gotta have that. So I worked and worked and worked. I made sure I didn't miss and I memorized things and eventually I became the head whirly bird. <laughs> it's still my claim to fame. <laughs> now, I, I get that we try to motivate our kids with, with prizes and candy, I mean, we used to do it with our kids hiking. You know, they would start to complain, we're tired, we can't go anymore. It's like, well, if we make it to the top of the hill, we have a gummy bear. And so we would give them a gummy bear and, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, and they're like, oh, I'm tired again. It's like, well, if we make it to that tree, here's a gummy bear. And so we would motivate them with candy, which is kind of counterintuitive a little bit when you're out hiking trying to get exercise, but that's what we did. And so we created this thing and our kids, they love the hike today. I mean, it's, it's, they don't hike for gummy bears anymore but they hike because they, they just enjoy it. And so I, I get that why we do that. It creates some good habits in our lives. It, it motivates them to do some good things. But here's the problem. As I get older and I grow in my understanding of faith and life, what motivates me begins to matter more and more. I mean, I, I would be worried if we were hiking with our kids today and I had to have gummy bears in my pocket. <laughs> We've got to grow. It becomes an internal motivation, a heart thing, rather than an external thing. See, if I only read my Bible to check a box, if I come to church because I feel like God will punish me if I miss a week, if I memorize a bunch of verses so I impress people with my knowledge of the Bible, 
If I do lots of good things, hoping that, that someday they'll do good things for me, that I'll get some kind of good karma, then all of a sudden these good things become driven by bad motivations, which in turn become gods in my life. But think of it this way. What if we had a, a checklist for marriage? Get up and make the bed, check. Tell her I love her, check. Give her a hug, check. Kiss her before I, I leave for work, check. And at the end of the day, I would look over my checklist and I'd be like, wow, 25 out of 30. Man, I did a great job loving my wife today. Look at all my check marks. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do a little better tomorrow. Maybe I, I won't, I don't know. But it wouldn't be much of a relationship, would it? You see, I don't need a checklist to love my wife. I'm motivated out of my love and relationship with her. You see, I'm going to make the bed because I know that's important to her and I want to show her love. Not so I can feel better about myself by checking that box. You see, if I only do religious things and, and portray myself in certain ways in order to win respect and privilege with myself and, and my peers, I've made a good goal a bad God. Because I want to live out of my relationship with Jesus, not from a bunch of rules and checkboxes. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the, the church in Philippi. And so if you have your Bible or you grab a device, it's also going to be on the screens. Uh, you can turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. In this passage, Paul gives us his unique perspective of what it means to live for Jesus. One of, the things that he, one of the first things he does in this section in chapter three is he reminds them, keep rejoicing. It's like keep rejoicing in, in relationship with Jesus. And I think it's incredibly noteworthy to consider that, that Paul is writing about joy from a Roman prison. Nonetheless, he's encouraging them be filled with joy. Keep rejoicing in Jesus Christ. Keep rejoicing in what he's done for you. This rejoicing will be a safeguard, he says. It will help you stand firm against those who are trying to trip you up in your faith. You see, because there was a group of people that were saying, you know, God's grace isn't enough. What Jesus did wasn't enough. Jesus isn't enough. You've got to add all of these things to it as well. And as a result of that, it was stealing their joy. These were joy robbers. They were promoting this Jesus and, Jesus, uh, Jesus and, Jesus plus theology. In order to be a part of God's family, you need Jesus and a bunch of religious rituals and, and good works. They focused on outward signs of faith, but, but Paul points out that it's really about a life and a heart that's given to God. It's a personal faith and relationship with Jesus. And so Paul wants these followers of Jesus not to be burdened with a bunch of rules and, and have to, so he, he essentially pulls out a verbal flamethrower. <laughs> he says in verse two, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. 
We put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in human effort. And so Paul's telling them, you don't have to have physical surgery or, or an external sign to be considered part of God's family. Because you've had a spiritual heart transplant, transplant that didn't depend on you. You see, many religious people have this Jesus plus, Jesus and kind of faith. You got to do these things. You got to dress this way. You got to wear this cross. You got to add this part to what Jesus did for you in order to be right with God. And again, the, the things we do are good. Baptism is, a, is an act of obedience. Jesus tells us, go be baptized. It serves as a press conference for our relationship with God. Coming to church and being part of a, of a group, a, a small group, is a good thing because it's only in community with other followers of Jesus that we can truly grow in our faith. But we don't do these things to earn our way to God. We're not to put our confidence in, in what we do or, or how we do it. In another, another letter that Paul writes to the, to the Ephesian church, he says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. In other words, we were sinners separated from God. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's not from yourselves. It's not what you do. It is a gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. What Paul's saying here is when we place our confidence in what we do, works become our God. And we miss the beauty of God's grace in our lives. As followers of Jesus, we're not to put our confidence in our own efforts. But Paul continues by saying, but you know, if we were to do that, if we were to put confidence in what we do in our own efforts, <laughs> man, no one can top me. He says, we put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. It's like Paul saying, you think you're good? Watch this, watch me, listen to this. And he gives them this spiritual resume uh, that, that's pretty impressive. He says, I'm I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm, I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. And we don't have all... We don't have time to go into all the details this morning, but here's what's going on. Paul's showing that in the world of external religious activity, he could smoke any one of us. He did the right things. He was from the right family. He joined the right groups. He won the right honors. He was a religious champion. 
He literally goes down the line and says, there's not one of you that is more externally righteous than I am. So you can compare anything you've ever done, anything you've ever memorized, anything you've ever accomplished religiously and morally, and I'm going to make you look like a fool. It's almost like Paul is saying, you know, I'm Michael Phelps and you swim a few laps at the pool. I'm Zion Williamson and you beat nine-year-olds at horse. I'm Bobby Flay and your best dish is scrambled eggs. That's the difference between you and me, as he's saying, morally and religiously. So with that in mind, what he says next is even more fascinating. He says in verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, all of these things that I just listed, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. See, anything that keeps you from knowing Jesus, anything you rely on, anything you put your confidence in other than Jesus, Paul's saying it's worthless. It doesn't mean anything. You see, Paul had put all of his accomplishments, all that he was on the scale, all of his works, all of his morality, all the good things he did, all of his achievements that at one time he thought this is how we gain favor with God. This is how he thought he'd earn the affection and the approval and the attention of God. And now he realizes, man, it it means nothing. It means nothing in comparison to experiencing the grace of God and embracing Jesus as Savior. It's a little like playing Monopoly. You know, you set up the board, you set up the game, and and the whole point of the game is to to get properties and and the, the, the gain, accumulate all of this colorful money. But not one of us would take all of that colorful money and take it to Acme and try to buy groceries. Uh, it's like the time I mistakenly tried to deposit my wife's Kohl's cash to the bank. <laughs> it doesn't work, <laughs> and it's embarrassing. <laughs> they don't accept it. <laughs> it's pointless. It's worthless in that context. So here's the point. When we place our confidence in our religious identity, our reputation becomes our God. And we lose the opportunity to be found in Jesus. Paul says, take, take all those whirlybird pins, all those gummy bear type things. Take all of those, I read my Bible today, phone badges. Take all of the accolades you receive for memorizing the book of Genesis. Take all of that and put it in a pile. And if it hasn't gotten you to Jesus, what's it for? What use is it? It's worthless. In fact, Paul says it's garbage. More than that, he uses a a word here that that means excrement or dung. And so what he's saying is all those things that, that you've worked for, that you've taken personal pride in, if they haven't led you into a more personal relationship with Jesus, it all belongs in the porta potty. Because I don't know about you, But after I flush the toilet, I've never thought to myself, man, I wish I could have that back again. It's ridiculous. 
Now that's what, that's what Paul is saying. It's like, I don't want to see it again. It's not part of my life anymore. And so do you hear how profound this is? You know, if you're here every time the, the door is open, if you've never seen a questionable, questionable movie, if you've never talked like this or you wouldn't do that, but you don't know now, love, worship, and follow Jesus Christ, what's it for? You've been chasing a bad God. And so that's Paul's point. He said, all that religiosity, all of that morality, all of that perfection, all of that trying to be good, garbage, next to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord, of letting him lead in your life. He's saying that loving Jesus Christ and knowing Jesus Christ and worshiping Jesus Christ is far better than all of those external activities you somehow think is going to earn you favor with God. And that is sobering and unbelievingly significant. You see, because Jesus told a story about a man, he was walking and he was walking through a field one day and he stumbled upon a treasure. And he was so excited, was so joyful over finding this treasure in this field that he sold everything he had, all his possessions to buy that field. In other words, this man considered everything else as expendable and worthless compared to that treasure that he had found. You see, studying the Bible is not the point. Jesus is the point. He's the treasure. You see, so setting a goal to spend more time in the Bible is not about how far I can get or how many check marks I, I, I can check, but how much through reading the Bible am I pursuing Jesus? As I read the Bible, am I looking for Jesus? Is he my passion? Is he my treasure? You see, some of us buy into the lie that as long as, as we're, we're good people and, and come to church, that, that God and I are okay. But are you pursuing Jesus? Is there a desire to know him and worship him and follow him, to be like him? Is there a seriousness to this? Are we simply playing with the tools or are we focused on the supreme treasure, our relationship with Jesus Christ as our Lord? You see, Paul says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He's saying our need and our hope is in Christ Jesus alone. When I, when I count all my efforts as loss, I gain Christ and I'm found in him. I think it's fascinating this phrase, in Christ, is used Paul, in Paul's letters over a hundred times. Here's what, a little bit of what I think that looks like. If this, is, if this open book is the life of Jesus and, and this piece of paper is my life, when I place my life into his, when I'm in Jesus, I've placed my life in him. I'm completely covered. My life is now in Christ. And so when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. 
because God counts the righteousness of Christ to your account. You are covered in Christ's righteousness. You are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, for us who are in Christ, that is our, posi- that is our position, that is our, our identity. This is our confidence in Jesus, not, not myself, not ourselves and what we do. And so our goal is to know him and become more and more like him. Well, Paul continues and realizes that, that knowing Jesus is going to involve both joy and pain, but he's like, I want to know Jesus' presence in my life. I want to know his power. It doesn't matter if it's going to be joy or pain. It doesn't matter. My goal is to know him. So even then, though, Paul recognized a couple of obstacles to this goal and growth. Because then he writes, now that I, not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind See, Paul wasn't satisfied with good. He wants the best. His goal is to know Christ Jesus, to be more like him. But at first he says, man, there's some stuff I need to leave behind. There's some stuff I can no longer let it influence my life. You see, because sometimes that, the, the things in our past, those events and circumstances and decisions and choices that we've made in the past can hinder our current pursuit of Jesus. And Paul's writing from personal experience. In Acts chapter 10, the the church is seeing this tremendous growth and one of the most peaceful times in history. Things are going well. The the church is growing. People's lives are being transformed and changed. it's, It's a beautiful thing. Things are going well. Things are clicking. And then one day, a man named Stephen gets up to preach a message. And it was a message that wasn't really much different than any of the other messages that were preached at the time. But on this day, he's preaching this message. And by the end, things turned deadly violent. There were some religious leaders listening in to what he was saying. They didn't like that he was preaching about Jesus. And so they rush him and, and they drag him out of the city. And they began to throw stones at him. See, these weren't little rocks meant to hurt him. These were stones meant to crush his body. The the text specifically states, meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Well, this young man named Saul would later become Paul, who's the author of 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 the section of Philippians 3 that we're looking at this morning. And he watched their coats so they would be less restricted in throwing their stones and crushing this man's life. And Stephen dies, brutally murdered. We read in the very next chapter, chapter 8, and Saul was there giving approval for his death. Yeah, throw another big one. 
He doesn't stop there. He gets permission to keep doing this sort of thing, to, to begin to continue arresting and, and imprisoning and terrorizing other followers of Jesus in a, in a town called Damascus. I encourage you to read it for yourselves in Acts chapter 9, but it's at this point as he's, as he's on this road and he's taking this group of men to continue to terrorize the followers of Jesus that Jesus meets him on the road and his life would never again be the same. You see, the scales that he's weighed his whole life upon, all the achievements, all the accolades, all the pats on the back, everything he's, he's put to his account to earn God's favor is blown up in light of meeting Jesus. And so I imagine as Paul writes about forgetting what's behind, there may have been some lingering memories of young Paul giving approval to that Stephen's death. There might have been memories of, of him imprisoning families and separating families and terrorizing families and followers of Jesus. You see, shame is an unbelievably powerful emotion and weight that if the gospel doesn't penetrate and redeem, will absolutely paralyze us from moving forward and hinder our pursuit of Jesus. You see, the point is when we lack confidence because of guilt and shame, regret becomes our God. Regret becomes that, that all-consuming thing that hinders our progress and we lose sight of Jesus. You see, the power of the gospel is the destruction of guilt and shame and regret. To forget means we're, we're to no longer be influenced or affected by these things. That's the power of the gospel. And Paul talks about this in his letter to a young man named Timothy. Listen, uh, listen to these, these words as he gives his story again. When he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, in my rudeness and disrespect, in my violence, I persecuted his people, but, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that comes from Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy saying and no, everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great, great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. According to this passage, Paul's, I believe it's Paul's understanding that, that God called him to serve when he was at his absolute worst. He's on this road to terrorize and imprison the people of God when God says, not anymore. No, you're, you're going to love me and serve me and follow me and exalt me. You're going to confess my name to the ends of the earth. And there was this overwhelming reality to Paul that while he was at his most wicked, God saved him. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. You see, God's grace is greater than our sin. 
It overcomes our shame. It covers our guilt. It, it allows us to move on from regret. But there's one thing I, I think else that we need to forget behind us, and that is our religious, our past religious experiences. Here's what I mean by that. Yes, we, we need to remember those times in our lives when Jesus has worked in our life some way. Yes, we need to remember lessons of faith and faithfulness that we've learned from our past. We need to hold on to those. Yes, we need to remember when, when God provided for a need or he helped us to overcome something that was hindering us. But we can't continue to live back there forever. And see, I, I meet a lot of Christians who live off of what Jesus did 15 years ago. You know, he, they live in the past as if Jesus, man, Jesus was great then. He was really great then. He was really great then. And see, when we live off of what Jesus did 5, 10, 15 years ago, it keeps us from passionately pursuing him today. You see, what, what is God doing in your life today? What is he teaching you today? How are you seeing God's fingerprints in your life and in the world today? How are you pursuing him and knowing him and living for him now? Where is he working in and through your life today? You see, when we place our confidence in the past, our experiences become our God. And we worship an experience and we miss a relationship with God that impacts our lives today. So where do we go from here? What's the goal? But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. See, Paul's goal was to know Christ Jesus and to become like him. It was this passionate pursuit that drove him. It was this pursuit that motivated by Jesus and what he had done for him. Paul could love because he had been loved unconditionally by Jesus. Paul served sacrificially because Jesus has sacrificially served him by giving his life for him. Paul could be content in every circumstance and Annie in every circumstance because he found his life in Jesus Christ. The goal is Jesus motivated by the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the grace, the hope, the life, the forgiveness that we find in him. And so we strive and we strain and we press on out of the joy of being in Jesus in the context of our relationship with him. It comes from a passion and zeal to live for things that last, to live for things that matter. And it all starts with Jesus. Leads to our last point is that is when we rely solely and exclusively on the life we have in Christ Jesus, we're compelled to live in love like Jesus. 
You see, when we say yes to Jesus, we are his. We are in him. We are children of God, not because of what we do or or what we've done, not because who I will be or what I want to become. I am his because he chose me and adopted me as his own, as his child. My life and my love are found in Jesus. Because of Jesus, my sin is forgiven. The wages of my sin has been paid in full. I'm covered in his righteousness. When Paul was trying to earn God's favor, all he had was a set of rules and rituals. When he experienced God's grace, he found a friend, a savior, a companion. And so to leave here today thinking that, man, we've done this or that or because we we give to the offering consistently, because we show up week in, week out, because we serve here and there and, and our kids aren't terribly rotten, that all of that somehow earns us our way to God. If we were to leave here today with that thought, it would be foolish. It's garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus and following him through, through the life that we have in him. You see, if you're walking down a country road and you see a turtle on a fence post, you know it didn't get there on its own. That's us. We didn't get where we are on our own. You see, because it's about Jesus and what he's done on our behalf. It's all about Jesus. It's because it's about Jesus, our response is to to turn up and begin worshiping him for who he is. Our response is motivated by, by the great work that he's completed in us. Our response is to passionately pursue him and, and give our lives and our love to him. Because our greatest goal is to know Jesus. Consider once again Paul's words. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Let's pray.